uh, once again, uh, let me extend my welcome to all of you uh, for joining us at this even song on this Sunday, the second Sunday before Lent. Now let me begin by prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank, I pray that you will guide our hearts and minds in your Holy Spirit as we now study your word from the Beatitudes. And please help us through your word to know and to love Jesus more deeply. And please, by your word, mold our rebellious hearts to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our friends, today we continue with our current series on the Beatitudes uh, from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, uh, focusing on verse 4. We says, we says that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And straight away we have a problem. Mourning and blessing. How can there be any blessing in mourning or being happy when we are sad? And if you read some other translations, you will find they say uh, you're fortunate when you mourn. In other words, how can being sad be described as enjoying the blessing or the enjoying the favor of God, being blessed by Him? Now, this is similar to the first beatitude that we looked at last Sunday that speaks about blessing and the poor in spirit. We are caught up in a dilemma, so to speak. We see this, this clash or this conflict between what the world describes or perceives as blessedness and what the Bible teaches us as true blessedness. In fact, this uh, will be true of all the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, verses 3 to 12. Now, when Jesus was speaking this, he was speaking in the immediate context of the Jewish people under Roman rule. They were subjected to the often unacceptable religious restrictions and demands, desperately longing for the good days of the Davidic kingdom to return, for the coming of the Lord's anointed, his Messiah. Last week, too, we discussed the broader context of the Babylonian uh, exile how Jews have been mourning the loss of their national identity for over 500 years before Christ came to live among them, how they were sent into exile in 586 BC by their conquerors, Babylonia, leaving only the poorest of the poor to tend to the fields. If you would look with me at the sermon guide in the middle of the bulletin, uh, we look at what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 1, verse 16, the Old Testament passage that we read just now. And Jeremiah wrote this, For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. We didn't read the next verse, but let me just read it for you. Uh, Jeremiah continued, the Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his force. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Jeremiah, mourning over a kingdom that was no more. As God placed Israel under his judgment, 
remembering that this kingdom was a kingdom that God himself has founded on the 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob. And beyond Jeremiah and the exile, of course, in the Bible, we know that there was some, there was some semblance of renewal for Israel. Uh, how they were allowed by Persia, their new conquerors, to return in 538 BC. Um, but even then, they never had a real Davidic kingdom. Although they were able to rebuild uh, the wall around Jerusalem, they were able to uh, rebuild parts of the temple so that they have a place to worship, they never, never had a Davidic empire ever again. And we see successive, successive world empires dominating them, the Greeks, and then at this mysterious time in the first century AD, the Romans. As, as a uh, people, the Jews were just treated as a religious cult to be tolerated as long as they obey uh, their, their rulers. But just like us, the Jews want to rule again, isn't it? All of us want to rule, to be independent of our oppressors. The Jews want to be where they once again can strut around in their worldly pride and earthly arrogance, where they can make merry and enjoy life without the need to be sad, to mourn. There's no need to mourn, there's plenty, and they can enjoy uh, being happy and, and where anger, uh, when hunger and thirst describe other people, not them where they don't have to care for other people or to show mercy to others or have peace with anyone because they have the power over them. They are the ones who demand peace. They are the ones who impose regulations on other people. So why care or why have mercy on others? And they don't have to answer to any other authority besides themselves. As we read the Beatitudes, we see that over and beyond these two contexts, the Beatitudes seem to go even deeper. We see that as Jesus chooses to focus on the qualities, the thinking, and the actions of the people in whatever age they happen to be, he was aiming or focusing at something deeper. For Jesus addresses not only the mourning of the loss of a nation, he addresses a much more fundamental issue. The whole creation stands under God's judgment. And those who realize this will mourn humanity's loss of righteous standing before the Holy God. As Paul reminds us by quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in Romans 3 verses 10 to 11, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. And later in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My brothers and sisters, we know it is so easy to see this failure in others, but it is not so silly, it's not so easy to see it in us, ourselves. It is indeed a very rare thing to be like King David who thinks of himself like a worm in Psalm 22. Even while David points uh, prophetically to the Lord Jesus, who will use part of this psalm 
as he hung on the cross at his crucifixion. David, surrounded by all his enemies and all his problems, with no way out, moans for himself. But nonetheless, he places himself at the mercy and grace of the Almighty God. Let me, let me just quote what King David says in Psalm 23, verse 6, and in verse 24. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. But God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and God has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now, King David's son, King Solomon, as you remember, we, if you remember, we were doing a, a series on Ecclesiastes in 2019, and some of you will probably remember the thoughts and the, the, the thinking and the writings of King Solomon, the son of King David himself. And I have reproduced this in, uh, in the sermon guide, uh, some writings from Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 to 4. Solomon says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the, in the house of mirth. Solomon recognizing that without the intervention of God, everything that man seeks to achieve becomes futile. All is vanity, for everything alive ends up dead, ends up dying. And life is but a transient, a transient chasing after the wind. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Solomon realizes that grief, sorrow, and mourning is a major part of human life. Everyone goes through mourning at some stage of their lives. Mourning, as the uh, psalmist did, because life is a struggle, even for one like King David, who was destined to do great things for God. Mourning like us, mourning the passing of youth, of vitality, of health and wealth and fame, mourning the futility of every human worldly achievement, no matter how brilliant. Mourning at the end of the inevitable end of human life in death. The Lord addresses this issue, the loneliness, the sadness of humanity under judgment. And much as we hate to acknowledge this, man is powerless to control his own existence and we need to place ourselves humbly at God's mercy, at his limitless omnipotence. We need to acknowledge that only God has the power to restore, to heal, and to comfort. And those who belong to him, called to be in his kingdom, brought in by his only son, Jesus Christ, will place their faith and their trust in him to bring it about. Now, friends, then we must ask ourselves, why then is it so, is it so difficult for us to acknowledge God? The answer is simply this. Man is sinful. From the Garden of Eden till the Lord returns for us, humanity will always seek to be without God, to go against what He has commanded us to do, to fix our eyes on the things of this world 
rather than the things that are above. To strive for the earthly, the illicit, the sinful, the instant gratifications of the flesh, even when we know that they are wrong. Finding excitement and temporary fulfillment in what uh, Paul speaks about in, Gal uh, in Colossians 3 verse 5, in sexual immorality, in impurity, in passion, in evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Giving way to the ungodly influences of anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from our mouths. Friends, sinful man under God's judgment is doomed to eternal separation from Him. And friends, it's not that you and I or ordinary man does not recognize this or is unrepentant. The Bible tells us, and King David is a key example of this in the Bible. The Bible tells us in Psalm 40 and in Psalm 51, and let me just read some of these to you. In Psalm 40 verse 12, King David says, My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. And in Psalm 51 verses 3 and 4, David says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I seen and done what is evil in your sight. But when David was made aware of his sin before God, David repented and God forgave him. David's uh, repentance was not just a temporary sentimental sadness and his making superficial attempts to please God. He became a better man and king, as the Bible tells us. And this serves as an example that we need to ask ourselves this question as well. Do we sin and then we feel bad about it and then we repent and we turn to God and the very next day we continue to sin without changing our actions, our behavior, our thoughts, our intentions? Friends, that would not be true repentance and grieving over what we have done wrong. Paul wants us to discern between godly grief and worldly grief in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. He says that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. But we know also, friends, that man is unable to return to God without God's help. The prophet Jeremiah that we were discussing, that we are discussing um, this evening, Jeremiah lamented this over and over again during the Babylonian exile. He says in Jeremiah 4 verse 22, For my people are foolish and they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. Harsh words indeed, but harsh words to come in Jeremiah 5 verses 21 to 24. All foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, and ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble? But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone astray. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God. But you know what? 
Our God is a merciful and loving God and He has a solution, one that would cost Him at great cost, one that He has to bring into being at great cost to Himself, for He would not leave His people no matter how rebellious to eternal condemnation. He sent His Son Jesus Christ to live as a man, to suffer and to die on the cross. And as he carried our sin on that cross, Jesus took the punishment that was meant for us. And in that single completed act, reconcile us with God. In Jesus, friends, we stand righteous again before our holy God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in Jesus' resurrection and glorious ascension, we await the return of our King, who will restore all things and rectify all wrongs and rule forever and ever. Back to the lamenting and grieving prophet Jeremiah. He finds great comfort in this great God, in spite of all his grief and all his uh, sadness, and who, despite all his grief that he faced from his own people, God, who faced all this, this uh, rebellion from his own people, nonetheless continued to be faithful and loving. Look down with me, if you like, uh, to the sermon guide where uh, Jeremiah wrote this in Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. And the prophet Joel, even as he prophesies the advent of that awful and terrifying day of the Lord, tells of a loving and forgiving God who will comfort those who turn to him in repentance and sorrow over their sins. Joel 2, verses 12 to 13. Yet even now, return to me with, your, with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rent your hearts and not your garments. For the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the psalmist too, see this loving God in Psalm 103, uh, verses 11 to 13. Let me read that to you. And for as high as the heavens are above the earth, as so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Our friends, we have gone through a lot of uh, quotes from the Bible. Uh, I promise this is just one last one uh, that I must uh, quote. A final quote from the Bible uh, that points us to that ultimate comfort of God that will come on that final day when Christ returns for us and the great joy that it will bring for those who belong to him. Revelations 21, verses 3 and 4. As John hears, the Apostle John hears this and sees this in his vision given to him by Jesus. He wrote this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and there will be his people, and God will be, himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, friends, we have gone through a lot of passages and a lot of uh, uh, thinking and discussion on one single line. So as we conclude our discussion on the second beatitude, uh, I'm going to suggest three things that we might want to uh, summarize and bring back with us today. Uh, firstly, discern the false things of joy. We discussed the, that the world seeks are the things that offer instant gratification are things like illicit sex, multiple partners, adulterous relationships, alternative lifestyles, name it what you want. Um, thinking that these are the things that make life worth living. And there are those others who go to houses of mirth, of merriment, of laughter, as King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, who indulge in drunkenness or shoot up, herion up their veins, or still others who go gambling, and still others, and this is a very uh, common uh, failure on our part, still others like us uh, indulge in our own selfish desires to possess more and more of the world's goods and to display them for others, to others to admire and to cover after. Our friends, these are all temporary and will not bring lasting happiness. The man or woman who knows this, who knows that his or her own righteousness and inability to achieve fulfillment without Jesus, these are the people who will mourn. But they will be comforted in the knowledge of God's love and mercy. So firstly, discern the false things of joy. Now second, recognize what is true happiness. And in our epistle reading from the New Testament, I want to pick up particularly James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. These verses remind us that true happiness rests in submission to God. He calls us to resist the devil who would then flee from us. And he urges us to draw near to, to God, for God will draw near to us. James says to humble ourselves and God will exalt us. So the question is, why is the true foundation of joy? Simply this, it is knowing that God is with us, guiding us and guarding us, walking with us as we go through life. And who guarantees us in his son Jesus a wonderful, glorious future that has no end. So secondly, recognize what is true happiness. Number three, true mourners live repentant and responsive lives. In this same passage from James 4, the Bible calls us to turn our joy to gloom, to recognize our sinfulness, to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Instead of the transient joys, rather to be wretched and mourn and weep because we have no future except in God. Remember that man's days are few and are soon gone. And do not deny Jesus as Peter did and regretted terribly in Matthew 26 verse 75. Rather, 
be like him a little bit later, who even unto death would go forth to proclaim that God sent his only son to save sinners like you and me. Remember too, Galatians 5.22, and find joy in the gifts of the Spirit, in love, in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and in self-control. And above all, find joy in communion with Jesus and in the salvation of our souls. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, please teach us to be mourners who recognize our own sinfulness. Please grant us strength in your spirit to resist the woolly things and to depend on you. And teach us to love Jesus all the more and to serve each other, each other as Jesus would ask do. In Jesus' name we pray.